Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to heaven. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I too am a funky weapon. And I'm refusing to start this podcast until I finish reading my newspaper. I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 7th of December 1995. FIFA 96 and Virtua Cop topped the console charts. Robson and Jerome are still top of the pops for one more week. And Goldeneye is still top of the UK box office. Ah, oh, Goldeneye. I I am trying to remember how close to release I saw Goldeneye. Like, was it, it... I don't think it would have been a day one. I wasn't quite at that level of control of going to see films on day one, but it must have been within the first week. I think for me, Goldeneye would have been something I saw on VHS, like, you know, next year would have been when I probably saw it. It may have even been, you know, because I, I think this got a premiere on ITV. And I wonder if that was when I saw it, like, taped off the telly. See, I know I saw it in cinema, and it would have been... It wouldn't have been the Roses Theatre. I'm not sure it would have been Gloucester. It must have been Cheltenham. It must have been going to Cheltenham, I think, for this one. But I also know I got this on VHS for Christmas the next year because they had the kind of fancy box set and there was, I think, the videotape inside and I think a copy of the song, like on a CD single and a book and a few other bits and pieces. It was kind of, you know, your standard VHS gift set of the time. But, oh, I watched that movie a lot. I was a fan of Goldeneye. I, I was a big fan of the Brosnan Bond for at least the first two movies. So, as most people who listen to this know, I also do work with Cineworld Cinemas, and I got an email from them this morning uh, announcing that over the next 25 weeks, at the time of the recording anyway, next 25 weeks, they're going to be showing classic Bond movies. 
because it's the 60th anniversary of Bond. So they're showing like for the next, yeah, the 25 Bond movies over the next 25 weeks, a different one each week. They're kicking it off with uh, From Russia With Love. I don't know whether it is, but I really hope Goldeneye is part of that because it'd be, I haven't seen it on the big screen before, like not even at the Prince Charles or something. So that would be a really fun one to go and rewatch. Oh, it would, especially because this is one of the last Bond films that really put a lot of heft into its miniatures. A lot of the bigger special effects work was done with miniatures, forced perspectives, and it was also, I believe, it was the last film of Derek Meddings. He worked on the Bond films throughout the 70s and 80s, also the Superman films, but his initial kind of major success came with Jerry Anderson and Super Mario Nation. And it goes right back to the beginning of the Jerry Anderson stuff. Torchy the Battery Boy in 1957. He was uh, doing backgrounds for Four Feather Falls, Jerry Anderson's kind of Western series that many people seem to forget about. He also worked on Supercar, Fireball, XL5, um, Stingray, Thunderbird, and my personal favourite, Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons. He was of that era where miniature wasn't just the, the preferred way to do things, it was kind of the only way to do things. And whilst Goldeneye does feature some early use of CGI, I personally think like that some of the miniature work in it uh, is just absolutely amazing. Uh, the train crashing into the tank, the lake with the hidden satellite, uh, and... And the, uh, the satellite dish crashing down right at the end. All of it, the work of Derek Meddings and his team. And just, I mean, particularly the train crashing into the tank. That is such a beautiful shot. So much work went into that. I love that one. Just looking at the TV news from the time on the 2nd and 3rd of December, Channel 4 airs Soap Weekend, a weekend of program dedicated to soap operas with documentaries and classic episodes of series including EastEnders, Neighbours and Brookside. It's coming soon, but for a limited period only. All your favorite ingredients for a cleaner, brighter watch. So get into a lava with the Channel 4 Soap Weekend, starting Saturday, the 2nd of December. And the day after that, on December 4th, the Beatles release Free as a Bird, their first new single in over 20 years, which did chart at number two in the UK box office, because, as we've already just previously mentioned, Robson and Jerome are still number one. It's also not... So it's not technically true as a fact because they did technically release uh, Baby It's You live from BBC. Uh, it was recorded from 63 and they did release that as a single in 1994. But I think Free as a Bird is probably, you could probably say that is their first proper single in, in 20 odd years. It's the first new single. And even yeah. then, I mean, a lot of people had already heard Free as a Bird before this came out. Like a lot of diehard Beatles fans, because it was a John Lennon demo, it had appeared previously. It had also in various issues been on various bootlegs over the years. Yeah, we've actually had this in our timeline. Like we were, talked about this back in episode 23 of series three, like when the the uh, the bootleg was first unearthed. Yeah. And, and it's, I like Free as a Bird. I like the song for what it is. Do I think it's classic Beatles? No, but I like hearing Ringo back there. You can tell he's steadfast behind the drums. There's a beautiful little George Harrison guitar solo. There's some nice work from McCartney. And the entire thing's held together by Jeff Lynne, who's desperately trying to turn it into an ELO song. But that's fine. Um, Real Love was also a perfectly fine single. That followed with Anthology 2. Uh, I was shocked to see this didn't get to number one. I... 
Do, do you know what's funny? Like when I was reading up about this and I saw this come up into in my research notes, and I was like, oh, all of a sudden I've just remembered why I did not like Robson and Jerome being in the number one position for so long because I would have liked this to have been the number one song. And I remember that at the time. Especially because even though he's dead, John Lennon actually sings on this song, unlike Robson and Jerome. Well, ex- exactly, yeah. I do want to say that uh, one of my favourite bits about Free as a Bird is the music video. So lovely, isn't it? Oh, it's still beautiful now. Just so many references to different bits from around Liverpool, from their songs, mixing together footage from their entire kind of like back catalogue and history. And um, interestingly, this is not the last time Free as a Bird will be released because it did actually get a fresh mix about uh, seven, eight years ago for the number one album that they did of the Beatles. They gave it kind of a fresh stereo mix uh which also actually worked to clean up john lennon's vocals further because of course the cleaning technology the digital cleaning technology has come a long way it's crazy to think that what they spent ages in the studio doing in the 90s we can now do on our laptops with adobe audition and so it was just bringing bringing it along bringing it up to date and also using a different take of george harrison's vocals and yeah it, it It's a song that I will still listen to amongst my regular Beatles playlist. Some people are snobbish about it. I'm not one of those. I'm fine with it. it it's a fun enough song. What have we got going on in the magazine before we get into the episodes? Well, there is a large feature, but I think I'm going to leave that for now. And that's actually to do with video game violence. And it's a subject we've touched upon in the past. And this is kind of like rounding up the various scandals of the past couple of years in the Games Master timeline. But I flicked to the back. And I found the letters page. Oh, well, that's timely as well, because we've got some letters opening up this show as well. Exactly. And we actually have two different sides of the 64-bit coin here, with the first letter called Ninty Calls It Off. Dear Games Master Team, Nintendo has lost one customer here. I was chuffed when I heard the Ultra 64 was coming out for Autumn 95. Chuffed? Chuff was writing letters to Games Master. <laughs> That is a reference to uh, our Discord user uh, fan listenership. Also, Chuff is dead. There's only Chaffinch now. (laughs) I sold everything I had to get the money ready for the launch of it. I had my little heart set on an Ultra 64, and when Ninty came and said it won't be launched until the last quarter of 96, I went berserk. I even started to buy Pop-Tarts. I mean, Nintendo are going to lose a lot of customers by doing this. Now I'm set for a PlayStation, and I'm sure hundreds of other people are. Stephen Banks in Cumbria. It is something that you and I kind of discussed a little bit last week. The whole, actually, you know, something Dominic Diamond mentioned as well. A good year's head start uh, on Nintendo. It, you know, more than a year's head start that Sony and Sega did. Not that Sega capitalized on that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but yeah, like, I think this did open up the doors for lots of people to move across to Sony rather than wait around for the ultra 64 i mean granted like if i'm you know if i'm a user maybe i would have just held on to my super nintendo because we're still getting new games released for the nintendo oh, but luke he sold everything well that's that's my point it's like i think you sold early you could have waited around just a little bit longer i mean you do need to sell i guess before it becomes completely redundant because otherwise the market value will drop considerably but games master magazine responds i know you were upset Stephen, but pop tarts 
There was much snivelling when Nintendo announced their decision, but this was caused by problems with their prospective Ultra partners rather than by Nintendo themselves. Nevertheless, Nintendo did decide to make the best of it and produce a machine that, on paper, is much more powerful than either Sega or Sony's Wonder Consoles. Still, as you say, that won't appear for at least another year, and at the moment the PlayStation looks like a good buy. Oh, and next time, it might be a good idea to wait until you playtest the machine before selling everything. Yeah, and that's not far off what I was kind of alluding to there, really. Also, isn't it interesting that we're recording this the day after uh, ROM announced that there was going to be yet another delay to the Games Master Oral History book? And, you know, I I think Darren, we interviewed on this podcast, was a bit concerned that another delay was going to bring some backlash to the book to be like oh you know for fuck's sake lads sort it out will you but again it's just you know it's nothing to do with rom it's nothing really to do with the partners that they're working with either it's just it is a shortage that has you know caused about this delay and actually the reaction to it was for the most part from what i saw looking at you know the comments left on the kickstarter and on our discord and stuff outside of a handful of you know comments and stuff it's been positive being people like Look, the book's going to get here eventually. It's no one's fault, really. It, there's just a as a paper shortage, and and actually it will be okay. And I, I think for Darren was probably very relieved to see that the reaction to it was way more positive than, than negative. I when I saw the update, I was quick to comment on the Kickstarter, just going, "It's cool. I get it." You know, I mean. I look down my list of Kickstarter and I look at the amount of Kickstarters I've backed that are now slipped behind. Um, I think the They Live board game is currently the furthest behind as that was originally meant to ship the end of 2020. Uh, But everything's delayed. Um, The Cthulhu, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game reissue, that's stuck somewhere in Poland. Uh, Avatar, the role-playing game, has had to outsource its um, printing to China because there is not enough spare paper stock in America. So they've had to completely redo it. And even they've gone, yeah, so we've got a printer that can do it, but also it's now in China. And I think, yeah, everyone's been understanding. A couple of people have, you know, complained and they're entirely entitled to complain. They have put their money down. They are entitled to that product by the contract of giving it. But it's not like they're being specifically singled out. Or even Mm. this project is being specifically singled out. It's just a thing. I've also seen some people going, well, can't you just give us the PDF? And I was just reading that going, this was before Darren had even replied to it. And I'm just going, nope. Because ebooks is one thing. But when you are working on something that at least the initial Kickstarter release is a very, very kind of heavyweight deluxe book, you don't want a PDF floating out around there on the internet. And even long term, a publisher that is as niche as ROM does not want their books necessarily floating around out there on PDFs because given the premium pricing of a lot of their volumes, they will lose sales to piracy. Exactly. And this is the first book that is going to be available on general sale as well. There are You can pre-order this on Amazon currently. So yeah, the last thing they need is a pirated PDF copy out there just being shared around by people. Also, and I could be completely wrong on this, but I just know it does impact some books and some contracts to uh, license stuff and to kind of like get agreements on appearances and icons and all this stuff and that, you know, photography and quotes and whatnot. Sometimes the contract for a digital version can be different because distribution methods are different. So it, it, it can all play in, but also... I'm I'm not expecting it. I never was expecting a PDF. And I'll be honest, through no fault of Darren's, I'm not sure this is the last delay this book will encounter because we've still got to get it from the manufacturers 
to the distribution centres. And whilst there is very sadly a conflict going on in this world, international shipping lanes are being affected, particularly when they are stopping at uh, neighbouring countries with ports. Yeah. But Luke, would you like a positive 64-bit letter? I was going to say, yeah, you did uh, tease us with the other side of the coin. So let's hear what that side is. Letter title, Jag is heavenly. Oh, do you know what? When you said it was a 64-bit thing, I nearly made an Atari Jaguar joke. And I was like, that's low-hanging fruit. Uh, Surely it's just going to be about the Nintendo 64. But lo and behold, that fruit is being grabbed at. Oh, no, no. Because, you know, we are hearing from Alex Shannon in Shropshire here. And he says, Dear Games Master, this is the first time I've written to you. So please answer. I've just bought a Jag. Kasumi Ninja, Doom, AVP, Dragon and Tempest 2000, and I am very pleased with my purchases. Anyway, on to the questions. That was a poorly structured intro. I was just making sure I hadn't misread it, but no, we'll get on to the questions. Will Mortal Kombat 3 be any good on the Jaguar? I can see the look on your face. Don't worry, we'll get there. This poor guy. Two, how much will it cost? Three, you said in issue 32 that it will be coming in a bigger cartridge. Does that go for the Jag? I guess that means that Mortal Kombat 3 on the SNES and the Mega Drive were going to be a bigger cartridge, so will the same be true of the Jaguar? That's, That's what I'm assuming means, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Four, will Revolution X be coming out on the Jaguar? Oh, wow, okay. I never really did I think that that would be a request. Like, I, I you know, he's he's clearly a Midway fan, uh, but I, <laughs> I, don't, I, I wasn't expecting another home port of that. Which of the following will be coming out on Jaguar? Primal Rage, Virtua Fighter... Lethal Enforcers or Mortal Kombat 2 from a happy, all caps, Jaguar owner. Do you know what? Like, hey, maybe now it doesn't seem like it's so so out there, but to think at the time there may have been some quite specifically Sega releases on the Atari Jaguar does seem like a that's certainly not happening prospects. It's just a feel quite, quite sad for, for, for this individual here. Particularly because, you know, like the Game Gear got a version of Mortal Kombat 3, but um, and I don't think it's I don't think it's quite heading for, heading towards our, our our friend here and his Atari Jaguar. Oh well, should we see what Games Master had to say? Yeah. Oh joy! Oh rapture! A happy Jag owner! Quick, call Atari! Hilarity aside for a moment, Alex, Mortal Kombat 3 on the Jag should be a corker. There's no price for it yet, but as the cart is likely to be pretty big, expect it to be over £50. As far as we know, there are no plans to bring out the games you mention on the Jag. A nice catch-all rather than going, Virtua Fighter, you having a laugh, mate? I was going to say, yeah, Sega's Virtua Fighter is probably not going to be on the Atari Jaguar. As we seem to be getting a lot of mail from Jaguar owners, rather than spouting off ourselves, we thought it would be a good idea to find out what you think of your machine. Just fill in our mini-survey, which is printed below, and return it to Jag Survey Games Master Address. Now, much like with the TV show, I haven't gone too far ahead in the magazines, but I really hope we get to see the results from that. Because the survey itself is like, oh, when did you buy your Jag? What Jaguar games do you own? How do you rate the games currently available from 1 to 10? Do you think the Jag CD will improve things? Nope. What game do you want to see most on the Jag? Yeah, I wonder, like, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, what purpose you like how you could purpose that into an article or something in the magazine because i guess it's just like games that the atari jaguars would like to get but like most likely they're just not gonna get though right i imagine the tone of the article will be look at these bloody numpties 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, with Games Master, maybe. Although the answer, you know, other than the look of Jaguar owner, the, the actual answer was fairly straight and not that mocking. I mean, by the tone of previous responses to Jaguar owners, when everyone and their dog knew it was a dead duck. Hello, viewers. These blogs are not, in fact, the Channel 4 Complaints Department, nor are they models for Mr. Byright. They're all systems managers, and they'll be getting smiled up for today's event. Before we get on to that, though, a couple more letters here. One from Peter Ball in Surrey, who says, Dear Dominic, my mum says video games are bad for young people, and she won't let me play them. What can I do? Well, I would say, Peter, study Crime Watch carefully and see if you can fit her up for any crimes committed in your area, and that should keep her quiet for anything up to a 10-year stretch. Uh, another letter here from Yvonne Kergill from Arbroath. Nice to get one from one of our lady viewers. Dear Dominic, how do you get to appear on Games Master? Well, it's quite simple, Yvonne. Each year we hold editions, and if you're very, very good at games, you're warm, you're witty, you have a fantastic personality, we let you come on. If you don't, then you get your own chat show on daytime TV. Hope I've cleared some things up for everyone there. It's funny when you're kind of writing your notes on a show like Games Master, that you sort of just get into a rhythm of this, but you also get into a rhythm of the show itself as well. So before Dom had even said a word, I had written in my notes, business blokes are reading newspapers. And that is almost exactly what Dominic Diamond says. It was just like, these are blokes. And, you know, they are not the Channel 4 complaints department, nor they models for Mr. Byright. They're just blokes. And this whole, like, I just, I love the word that they're using here. And, and it, it just made me sort of chuckle to myself that I had written that down before Dom had even said it. My exact first note was, men in suits. Men in suits reading newspapers. Businessmen, men in suits. And then I went on to what actually Dominic said. But also, big shout out for the Mr. Byright reference, otherwise known as Blue Ink and the Officers Club. I don't remember Mr. Byright like seeing a Byright shop, but I do remember Officers Club. Yeah, I, I did go to Google and typed in Mr. Byright. And the first thing I found was an article of just like, do you remember how great the 70s were? And it was just someone reminiscing about how much they loved the 1970s and how life was better then because you had places like Mr. Byright. I need to check, but I think in my wardrobe now, I have a short-sleeved red shirt that is literally at the end of its life. I'm just going to have to give it up as gone, but it's kind of one of my kind of fishing slash outdoorsy type shirts. And I think it was from Officers Club or Blue Ink. And it would have been one that I bought in the mid-90s and then I outgrew and then I shrank back into. So I think I've still got remnants of the Mr. Byright chain or, you know, one of its subsidiaries. But it was apropos that we read letters from Games Master because, once again, the TV version has been had some letters sent in as well. And I think these letters and the responses that Dom gives are way better than the first time they did this joke a few episodes back because I think these are really, really good answers. The whole, like, fitting your mum for a crime on Crime Watch so she could do a 10-year stretch really made me laugh. And the very simple punchline of people who fail their auditions on Games Master become daytime hosts on Channel 4 really made me laugh. I, I kind of, I dug the whole, well, you know, your mother doesn't like video games, we'll let you play them, all fine. Fit her up for armed robbery. That's a simple one. And when he started on the next letter, on my first viewing, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. I was genuine, because we've had a few comments recently and I'm just like, oh no. Where's this going to go? Genuinely didn't see the punchline not being, but if you're a fit bird, you'll get on, and actually being, but if you don't do very well, you become a daytime TV chat show. Bam, take that, Kilroy. It almost makes me think as well, 
that Dominic Diamond had auditioned to be the host of a daytime chat show thing, didn't get it. So his attitude now is that I'm actually too talented to do one of those roles. And that's why I didn't get it. Well, not even necessarily daytime TV, but the word, which was kind of like night. It was nighttime TV. It It was the evening equivalent of daytime TV, really. That's exactly it. Yeah. So maybe he just, he still got that bee in his bonnet. And it's just that it's only uh, untalented hacks that go onto that, as opposed to people with an unbearable weight of massive talent like Dominic Diamonds that are doing and shows Nicolas like Cage. Game- <laughs> and Nicolas Cage, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that are doing shows like Games Master. I can tell you've been doing the Cineworld stuff because you've got. <laughs> well, that, and I keep seeing the poster for it as well. And there's a poster that makes me laugh because it does literally, it literally says Nicolas Cage as Nick Cage. And I watched that clip yesterday of him watching Paddington 2, and it might be my new favorite movie. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. But anyway, we are here to play Doom. Slight spoilers there. What are we playing, Games Master? I've always had a soft spot for champs. And I'm going to indulge it today as I put a champion Doom player through his paces. Our contestant must enter a deathmatch arena in which three other players are waiting to dispatch him. Three against one are the kind of odds only a champ could deal with. And he'll need nerves of steel if he's going to send them all to their doom. Oh, we're playing Doom. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dom had already said that, but here we are. It's Doom, but this is quite a Doom challenge. I love this. I also love the title of the challenge because we've had some contrived titles and some puns, and I love the straightforward nature of this one of, Oi, bloke in a suit, fancy a fight. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a gunfight, certainly. But I love the conceit of this challenge because it's not just a deathmatch. It's three on one. It's a handicap match. Now, Luke, with our wrestling background, handicap matches are always way more interesting than just your standard tag or kind of free-for-all because someone has a literal target painted on their head. Exactly. Someone has the numbers advantage. And slight spoilers for when we do get into the challenge, our business blokes do not take advantage of the fact they have a numbers advantage. No. I, I mean, our business blokes, they all play Doom for ooh, at least an hour a day. This was a really weird answer, wasn't it? Because uh, we've got Gary, Simon and John, wonderful British businessman names, that is. And Dom, you know, he says, you guys are here just to be cannon fodder. And ask Gary if he plays Doom in the office, looking to be like, you know, kids watching this at home, your dad's in the office, he's not actually doing work, he's playing Doom. But what Gary says is, I play it for about an hour or so in the evening. So that's not quite in the office then. That is just, I play it when I get home from work. Oh, see, I read it as, it's five o'clock, lads. Down spreadsheets, up the doom. So they actually play it in the office because where else are you going to get a LAN? Well, well, you can play it on modem. Back to my previous point. <laughs> it, I, I honestly could see these three guys going, oh, we've done doing the accounts for the day. Should we frag it up for a quick hour? I do love the idea of that. And, you know, it's not too dissimilar to what I'm, I do in my office now, here in, in 2022. I'm, I'd, I'd be disappointed, Luke, if I didn't find out that you guys actually just downloaded some Doom Classic and ran multiplayer LAN. You've got the perfect setup for it, and every computer that you and your co-workers have could be running Doom. I, I, I would love to do that. Problem is, I think I'm the only person in my office that's interested in playing classic Doom. The problem we've got, Ash, is that the people in my office are interested in playing ugh, new games. I just don't understand it. I would love to play some classic multiplayer Doom or Quake. 
Classic Quake. Oh, Quake, absolutely. Because that remaster that came out recently is superb. And it's really good. And, you know, I was, we were talking recently on the, the Discord about the, the Cowabunga collection, the, the TMNT collection that's coming out soon. And I'm like, that'll be an awesome purchase. But, you know, when I get down to it playing in the office, I don't think many people are going to be that interested in playing it. Or they'll play, you know, play through the arcade game once and then that'll be it. And they'll be like, can we just play speedrunners again? So you say they want to play new games, but then they're playing bloody speedrunners, which is, it's not vintage, but it's not new. It is, it is newer than any game that I want to play, though. Ah, what about Shredder's Revenge? Well, that's a, but again, I think they would play that for a, a handful of, you know, because it is a old school two on, you know, a, a 2D beat-em-up. Uh, side-scrolling beat them up I think they would play it get bored of it quickly and just want to play speedrunners again it's impossible to get them off that smoking game I guess that's why you do a retro game podcast with me and not with them <laughs> that's exactly right yeah because you're uh, you're interesting and actually want to play some good games for a change I'm going to put that on my Twitter bio <laughs> this is Luke Owen you're interesting but no I, I've completely forgotten where we were going but no Dom does kind <laughs> yeah. of go you know, oh, only an hour. Are you just lying because your boss might be watching this? To which the answer is yes, absolutely. Maybe. Oh, no, without a shadow of the doubt. Like going back to one of my previous jobs where I used to work in education and during the summer, we'd replace all the computers. The general rule I had is, you know, we're replacing maybe 200 to 300 computers over a six to eight week period. It's a lot of work. So what we would do is there'd be myself, the technicians, and we'd get some student helpers in that were going between the uh, lower and upper six. They'd be paid. It would be paid on an hourly rate. And it would generally be people from the IT classes because we knew they could do the work. But they also already knew that we were keeping an eye on them because they were in the IT classes and therefore they didn't want to try and mess around too much anyway. But the rule I had is, right, here's how many computers we need to get done over this period. Here's how many we need to get done a day. If you can get X amount done in the first like three days of a week, then Thursday, Friday, we take extra long lunch breaks and we use one of the suites to play Unreal Tournament, LAN party style. Now that's what I'm talking about. It was a better motivator than the money. Not just for them, but for my regular staff. My regular staff were like, shit, we gotta move on with this. And it was great because you then had a room with up to 15, 16 people in, all playing Unreal Tournament. But if anyone ever asked, oh no, we only spent an hour. <laughs> But that again goes back to me, uh, Ash, saying that you are interesting um, because when I used to go to um, like, you know, land cafes and stuff and internet cafes to, to play games and, and that back in sort of the, the mid 2000s, uh, could I get anyone to play Unreal Tournament? Could I bollocks? Could I peel them away from playing fucking Counter-Strike? Could I ask? Just wanted to play a bit of Unreal Tournament and no one ever wanted to play that game with me. So I ended up playing Counter-Strike every single time we went there, even though I don't really like Counter-Strike. I'm okay with Counter-Strike. It's fine. But I want Unreal Tournament. I want the... What's the mode in Unreal Tournament? The base one. I forget what it's called, but like Domination or whatever, where you have the different bases and you have to capture them. It's not quite Capture the Flag, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Someone's probably shouting the answer at the podcast right now. But I loved playing that. That was one of my favorites because you split into teams and it was a real tussle back and forth. It was so much fun. Such a great game on real tournaments. This is the latest in Sega's violently successful series of virtual arcade games. Virtual On is a two-player game where players control massive robots in a futuristic version of the old gunfight games. 
If you get close enough to experience your opponent's pits, you can punch his lights out. But it is rip-ticklingly jolly to smack them about with a rocket as they leg it. Virtua On is out next month. It's the next big Sega release from the AM2 development. Two-player fighting mech warrior type situation. I've never played Virtua On. Um, I know there's like a whole series of these and stuff. And, you know, the, 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 this arcade cabinet ended up being so popular that there ended up being a, um, a Saturn port for it, uh, which apparently was really difficult to do because as we've discussed previously, the Saturn just isn't quite as powerful as the arcade machines that it's based upon. However, like it looks really, really fun to play and I can see why this was a huge appealing coin-op to play. I've played Virtual On in a number of different ways. One is via the actual Saturn that I own and I played it with the standard controller because I, if the twin stick had more and varied a use for the Saturn, I would perhaps pick one up because, you know, it's a cool little bit of a controller. But pretty much it's virtual on and that's about it. I've also played it under emulation in the Yakuza series because the Yakuza series has Sega arcades all around Japan and each one has different games. I want to like virtual on. I genuinely want to love it. I want to just feel at home in this game and I don't. And that really honestly makes me sad because this is a game which I should love. It's giant twin stick shooty mech game. It's like tank controls, but you can also punch people. I really, really want to like it. And I do think it's a very good game. I'm just not very good at it. And therefore I don't enjoy it. Mm. That is a shame. I, I've not played it, not even in uh, Yakuza, but I did want to give it a go after seeing this news item here. I would like to, but yeah, it's, I think it might be, it would have been great in 1995, 96, and maybe it has just dated quite poorly now. I need to see if they've got a copy of this in Heart of Gaming. I can imagine the twin stick controls could make it quite difficult to get hold of, because when you get unique controls, it can become a bit of an issue. But I would love to play this in the arcade with that stand-up cabinet feel. That's what I think it needs. I almost like, you know, they were talking about how like it, it was so popular in the arcades that it was like fan demand got it ported to the Saturn. But I think it does. It is an arcade game and it stands up better as an arcade game because of that setup. It's one of those, things, you know, kind of like Sega Sonic the Hedgehog would not translate to the home market because without the trackball, it's a it, it, that's what makes it an arcade game and that's what makes it an appealing thing to play so yeah maybe this is just it, it works better in arcades than it does in the home market yeah and i mean much the same the thing is you could actually emulate this with twin sticks and it actually be quite easy because flight sticks are commonplace you'd need two flight sticks but you can actually get flight sticks pretty cheaply i've actually got one that i got for a tenner from a charity shop which i got purely to fart ass around with no man's sky uh you mentioned the saturn version being problematic uh yes it, they had to cut it out they had to make the models lower res uh the backgrounds were replaced with standard scrolling images which is something that happened on a number of saturn arcade conversions that's what we were talking about last week with sega rally yeah but it's it's crazy and maybe must have there must have been something going on inside Sega where they're like, man, people really want these 3D games in the home and we've just built a console that can't do these games. Isn't that mad? It's, it's actually frustrating, really, when you think about it, considering that, you know, one of the Mega Drive's big selling points when it came out was being able to play near arcade perfect conversions. And you'd have thought that when they were doing the Sega Saturn that they were just almost like 
emulate the technology we've got here and just put it into the home market. But yeah, what we got was just a, a half-assed version of it. And uh, there's a quote from the Wiki article on Virtual On, which I just want to read out, which is on how much of an arsake this game was to port. As you know, Watari, who was the producer, said... The robot Daden fires a laser, but we really had our work cut out trying to figure out how we were going to represent the laser because its radius is so big. At first, there was a delay when we tried to draw it on the screen, so we had to rewrite it several times. They were literally encountering a problem where the Saturn was not powerful enough to draw the weapons on the screen. And it's almost at that point you got to think, is this really worth our time? It was. It, it was, it was, it is still a very good port on the Saturn and there was enough faith in it that, yeah, they produced a bespoke twin stick controller, which, <clears throat> I don't know, if I make it to one of the London gaming markets and there's an unboxed version cheap enough, maybe I'll be swayed in the moment and just add it to the stack of plastic tat. See, I tell you, it wouldn't be so bad if you could get Saturn to USB controller adapters because then I could use it for a bunch of twin stick games under emulation. <laughs> The internet is full of sad blokes trying to make friends, and now thousands of people are avoiding any possible rejection by creating electronic mates on a new website. An experiment in artificial intelligence, the Digital Beastie homepage, allows you to construct a creature which then has to fend for itself and especially create a world against everybody else's beasties. Thanks to little postcards you'll be sent, you can keep track of its progress as it mates and has fights. I called mine Dominic Diamond, it pulled all the ladies and ate everyone else. This uh, next news item we got here is a very interesting one because as far as I can tell from the what Dominic Diamond tells us here is that you create monsters that then go into a sort of like Monster Island type place and they battle and they mate and they sort of live a life uh, under uh, AI, but you don't get to sort of watch them do this. You just get sent JPEGs of how they're getting on. It's kind of like pen pals, really, is you kind of create life, you send it off into the world, and every so often it will send you a postcard going, thank you for the scarf, it was very good. By the way, et five other creatures today and humped another. Yeah. So it then makes you think, hmm, is there really a uh, an online arena that they're going into, or is it just someone just writing up, here's what happens? Well, it was real, because... I found out what this was because you go to Google, you type in digital beasties, you're not finding much. And I can't even remember the Google chain that I wrote to get this far, but it involved looking at the fact what little I could see. I could see it was on a .ac.uk website and I knew it would involve artificial intelligence and all this stuff. And eventually I found the Technosphere, which was an online digital environment. It launched September 1st, 1995 and was hosted in a UK university. It was created by Jane Prophet and Dr. Gordon Selly. It was a place where users from around the globe could create creatures and release them into a 3D environment described by the creators as a digital ecology. Early incarnations did not have the advantage of web-accessible 3D graphics, but were still governed by chaos theory and similar algorithms that determined each creature's unique behavior based on their components and their interactions with each other and their environment. The virtual landscape consisted of 16 square kilometers of terrain and capable of supporting approximately 4,000 creatures simultaneously, although some sources have suggested as many as 20,000 could coexist in the virtual environment at any one time. So it did exist. Not only did it exist, it kept ticking along. And if I scroll down this very, very bloody long article that I found, and I really can't be 
bothered to go through it all. It was around until like the mid 2000s or later. It relaunched a couple of times as people dug out the source code. And I imagine as time went on, it would become easier and easier to relaunch it because processing power increased. But what you said about the postcards, when significant events occurred in the technosphere, a user's creature would send brief email message home and users were also able to visit the website and view 2D snapshots of their creatures, check the family trees because the creatures could mate and create new branches, check world statistics and search for other creatures and their users. Keep in mind this was 1995, but in its initial launch, it attracted over 100,000 users who created in excess of 3 million creatures. Bloody hell, that's mad impressive for 95. And in addition to being featured on Games Master, it was popular and noteworthy enough that it actually resulted in temporary installations in places such as the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television and the Donald R. and Joan F. Beale Center for Art and Technology at the University of California. Museum visitors could create creatures using touchscreen terminals and then release them immediately into the technosphere. So, short little news article where Dominic Diamond jokes about eating and pulling all of the other creatures turned into something that I'm like, man, I wish I could get this up and running today because this seems pretty freaking cool. This is your um tamagotchi meets pokemon meets barcode battlers in real well that's what i mean it's just you know this is like tamagotchi digimon but way more impressive way more involved like this isn't just you know like it grows a little bit it poops it runs through an lcd life cycle these are almost like i don't want to use the term living and breathing creatures but they almost are Yeah, and via use of chaos theory and other such algorithms, the behaviour is as close to random as you can get. And also on a side note, it's very rare I impress myself with what I managed to dig up, but this time, I genuinely did. I did not think I would find anything on this. And I'm glad that you did, because I just typed into Google, Digital Beasties 1995, nothing came up, and I was like, oh, f*** it, I'll move on to the next news item then. (laughs) Yeah, I think we've just established the difference between mine and yours research styles. I see it as a challenge, you see it as a f*** it. Speaking of fuck it. Just premiering in the US, Space Above and Beyond, the latest TV series from the creators of the overrated X-Files. Said in 2163, alien blokes are kicking in Earth, and the only hope is the young Turks who make up the air and space cavalry. Stars Morgan West and Shane Vanson look uncannily like young versions of Agents Mulder and Scully, and there's cameo appearances just like the X-Files, with Jim from Neighbours appearing in the very first episode. Where's Bouncer? Thankfully his colony gets blown up within seconds in one of the many spectacular sequences that quite literally litter this alien extravaganza. Look out for space above and beyond quite soon, Mum, because there's lots of burning flags. Yeah, poor old space above and beyond. Like, you know, Dom's here just to dog on the X-Files a little bit, but like this is, it's a show that they, they planned a lot for this. Five seasons of this show were planned. But we only got one of it. And yeah, like it was just a lot of sci-fi shows like this at the time. Big ideas, didn't really find its audience. And then just sort of, you know, I I mean, IGN posted an article about this once that called it a show that went before its time, like many sci-fi shows around this period. So yeah, it's a a bit of a shame because like what the show here in, you know, the clips for a TV show with the big explosions and everything and sort of like alien spaceships flying over looks really, really cool and and quite impressive for, for TV at the time. I just don't think that it found its audience. No, I'm 
Why was the X-Files so successful? If you leave aside Mulder and Scully, as a concept, it was successful because it was grounded in the real world and brought the fantastic to the real world, as opposed to Star Trek, where you're always going to new planets that look like quarries or stages, or shows like Lost in Space, that whilst actually set in a far and distant planet, it's very much static. So you sit there and you're on a planet and it's actually more about the family unit. It's the, it's the space family Robinson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, It was the Ghostbusters principle. The original script of Ghostbusters was the, the fantastique. And when Ramus and Reitman came aboard, they were like, no, let's just let's set this in the real world and let's put ordinary people in an extraordinary situation because that is actually more interesting. Um, To drag Doctor Who into this as well, John Pertwee, former Doctor Who, uh, was always a fan of the Earthbound stories, which is good because his first couple of years were set on Earth because he lost his ability to travel in time and space unless it was called upon by the story, um, was that there was something more terrifying about an alien creature being on Earth than an alien creature being on another planet. Yeah, exactly. Because you're not going to be on another planet, but you might discover a Yeti on your lavatory in Tooting Beck, I think, to misquote him. So, yeah, so the X-Files worked because, you know, they were going all over the Amer- all over America or Vancouver. Um, but this, which was also probably shot in Vancouver, was set in the future and space, and it did look good, and Fox clearly had some faith in it at first, because they threw money at it. And the critics did like it. It won awards. It did really well critically and in the genre fans, but it didn't light a fire with the ratings and the general audience. And also, I just want to say, Dom, it's Shane Vanson, played by Kristen Cloak, and Nathan West, played by Morgan Weiser. Not Morgan West. Come on, dude. I know you don't like it, but get your notes in gear. I was going to say, I think as soon as Dom saw from the makers of the X-Files, because it is by Glenn Morgan and James Wong, he was just like, eh, I'm not interested because the X-Files is overrated and Gillian Anderson isn't all that fit. But that was indeed Alan Dale, a.k.a. Jim from Neighbours, guesting in the first couple of episodes. That is the only thing on this that interests Dom, is that he saw that and he was like, someone from Neighbours, I can make a joke about this. Also, there's lots of explosions and a lot of burning flags. Uh, it did air in the UK eventually uh, on Sky One and BBC Two. And if like you can almost, if you hear that as a sentence, you're like, I know exactly when this aired on BBC Two. Like I can picture the time slot, looking at the radio times when this would have aired. Um, one notable other thing, just on Space Above Me, on because I did watch it and I did kind of enjoy it. Is uh, a lot of the music was done by Shirley Walker, who'd also worked on Batman the Animated Series. Now Gary, Simon, and John, the cream of British industry, have taken their positions uh, for our event. I broke in suit, fancy a fight. They'll be playing against our champion. David Dennis, who is slightly smaller than them, but he does have a fantastic earring. David, what do you like to do when you're not playing Doom against businessmen? Watch cartoons mostly. What's your favourite cartoon? Swap Cats. What exactly is Swap Cats? There's a big city of cats and bad guys come and like destroy the city. So there's two people who come and rescue the city from the bad guys. And what do the cats do? Like fire guns and airplanes, uh-huh. blow them up generally. So it's quite realistic, quite true, real life kind of cartoon. Yeah. yeah. All right, David, what kind of tactics are we going to see from you today? Well, a fast moving, don't stop, because I might just get shot in the back. So when I open the door, move back, and 
Move around. And all, all guns blazing, never stopping for a second. Yeah. Fantastic, aggressive tactics here, David. We'll ask you to hold off just for a second while I go up to the comedy position. Love the setup that we've had for this Doom Challenge, where we have got these business blokes. And, you know, they've been building this up. Like, Games Master was talking about how he loves a champion. And Don's been talking about, you know, Doom champions and this, that, and the other. And considering that we had a feature about Doom championships not that long ago, it makes you think that you're going to have an actual Doom champion, someone who competed in a Doom tournament playing against these business guys. And the big punchline reveal is, it is a child named David. And I laughed uproariously when I saw it, particularly then when Dom's asking him, what's your favorite cartoon? It is such a funny juxtaposition to watch this tiny child versus businessmen in business suits. The one thing I think it telegraphed, and I... <sighs> I genuinely believe this competition was legitimate. Is as soon as I saw that they were playing a 10 or 12 year old child, I'm like, this kid's winning. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, Dom even said, you're here to be cannon fodder. Yeah. But we do meet young David Dennis. He's much smaller, but also has quite a cool earring. And Luke, his favourite cartoon is SWAT Cats. which he sells to Dominic to the best of his ability. His description of SWAT cats, though, is quite poor. Here is what, here is what I posit happened. David did not expect this question. Like, Dom didn't run past him, you know, run it through him saying, like, I'm going to ask you what your favourite cartoon is. He just said, what's your favourite cartoon? This isn't his favourite cartoon. It was just the first cartoon he thought of. And then when he said, what's it about? It was like, actually, I don't, I don't know much about it. Like, I, it might have just been the cartoon that he saw that morning. And it was just like trying to describe it to the best of his abilities because he's talking about humans. And there are no humans in SWAT cats. It's very quite much anthropomorphic cats. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a Furby's paradise, to be blunt. But it, SWAT cats, I popped huge for hearing SWAT cats being mentioned. And I did a bunch of research into SWAT cats because I thought this would be a fun show to talk about, not only as a show, but how it got cancelled and the various kind of scandals around it. With that being said, we're not going to talk about it right now, are we, Luke? No, we're not, because we made the decision it would be apropos of us to do this as the next episode of UCP Extra. So all of Ash's research that he's got there and my combined research will go into forming that podcast, which will be available on Patreon uh, in the next couple of weeks or so. Yes, it should be on Patreon, hopefully the first week of May, and we will be covering Season 1, Episode 1, The Past Master Always Rings Twice, which is available by various video streaming platforms, some of which require you to pay others don't it's also very interesting though as well the one thing i will say is that do not believe imdb because the incorrect movie database has got it wrong again claiming that the uk premiere of this was march 1996 and it wasn't it was july 23rd 1994 because i went to imdb to see that and i was just like hang on 1996 is this kid from the future Nope, it's just that place is wrong. And setting the podium for Deathmatch Doom is PC Reviews, Rick Henderson. Rick, Deathmatch Doom then, what's the best tactics to use? Well, on the PM Consultants Network, there's a lot of weapons lying around, so get yourself a big 
funky weapon as soon as possible. You can't go through life with a pea shooter. That's true. Also, uh, don't stand around in large open spaces because you never know when a businessman's going to come from behind. Wise words there from Rick. But moving away from the very realistic and true-to-life SWAT cats, the very realistic and true-to-life Rick Henderson is in the commentary box and suggests that you should get yourself a big funky weapon. Also, and this is, you know, just good life advice, really, is don't hang around in large open spaces because you never know when a businessman is going to come from behind. Yeah, try and sell you something. Now, we get into this challenge here and we only see it from David's perspective. Like we don't see from, you know, we don't, we don't get to see the other business lads playing through their game. And it feels like they're being quite static at times when you actually sort of like, you know, see the challenge as full. I loved this challenge, by the way. It's quite a long, lengthy challenge. Um, takes up a lot of the first half of this, considering there's the news and the reviews, but I really, really like that. Um, but David here is just like in, no, he has no issues whatsoever, particularly because very early on, he goes and gets the supercharged health to go up to 200%, and he has full armor, and he has the chain gun. And from what I can gather, looking at the other guys, they don't get any of that. And so it is just a case of he goes hunting and just hunts them down one by one. Essentially, we are seeing the film Predator from the perspective of the Predator. I, first time I saw this, I was a little bit disappointed we only actually saw David's point of view. But I'm also, in retrospect, very glad because it increased the tension because there'd be moments and we, as we get into it where he goes into a room and you can tell someone else has just been there. Yeah, and you can hear the doors closing in this and the other. I, I love that. You, go, you know, Rick Henderson is even saying like, oh, you can you hear that someone's close by. It's like alien isolation. Alien Isolation, the, the, the great tension of it is not knowing, was that just a door misfiring? Was it an alien? Was it an NPC? Was it an android? You know, it, it, it's all about the tension. And yet, yeah, David knows this level. He goes for the secret armor cache, he gets the supercharge, he gets the chain gun. And it's around the time of the first encounter where David almost makes a mistake because you're right, we enter the we enter the base after getting the power-ups, and he sees a door finishing closing. And he doesn't go and investigate immediately. He kind of goes off in the other direction before changing his mind. And it definitely gives his nemesis a head start. But John, who I assume is the one that messed around with the door, is the first to break cover and basically gets killed immediately by the chain gun. I don't think he even gets a shot in. And not only does he die in the game, but Luke, he gets vaporized from his chair. Yeah, like they cut back to the studio and they just remove him from shots. Not like, you know, escort him from the set. He just goes like, and a big sound effects plays and he disappears. But one down, two to go. Simon is up next, and having seen what happens when David becomes war, he legs it. He absolutely pegs it away. And it is a very dark area. David isn't doing so well at searching him out. This is also not helped by the fact that, I don't know if it was like this for you, but the YouTube copy is very heavily saturated and very the contrast is very high. So dark areas are pitch black. This is one of those ones where I downloaded it and then just put it into Premiere Pro and just messed around with the colours and everything there so I could watch it nicely. That's absolutely fair. I just squinted. But... <laughs> that shows the difference, Ash, between your and my commitment to research on watching these episodes. Touché. <laughs> <laughs> but Rick calls the businessmen cowards. Are they men or mice? And Dom thinks he heard a squeak. That was probably Rick farting. There is a moment, like, because after he guns down Gary, Gary actually does get a couple of shots in, you know, takes him down to 157% health. So, like, David's not in any form of trouble here, but, you know, at least he got a couple of shots in. Um, where you can hear Rick and Dom 
run out of things to say. Maybe go down towards the earlier levels, David. Go down into the basement again. Because he's just in black, he's probably likely to be hiding in the Andrew area. Or in a shop selling lots of black clothes. <laughs> it's very tense here, we know somewhere within this level. There he is! Oh, there he is there. Because it's this point here that David spends a long, long time trying to find the final businessman, Simon. And just Rick and Dom just go quiet for a bit. And it's not because anything is edited, it's just that they've said it all. They've said everything that there is to say. Rick has gone like, um, do you want to go into the basement? He might be down there. And then he's like, I've, I've seen him walk around these areas. Um, he'll find him eventually. And then, he, and then he does. And Simon's tactic is pretty good, which is shoot and run away. Yeah, he draws David down, so he takes a couple of shots, he runs away, he goes around corners. That's the thing, he uses corners as shelter. And if this was a fair fight, he might have done okay, but he's got a best of shotgun, David has a chain gun, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, and if someone else brings a chain gun to a gunfight, you probably may as well have a knife. David eliminates his opponents, the deadliest game is over, he is the champion. Yeah, and he had 102% health left as well. So, oh, it was could, a tight one then. You could make the well, you could make the argument that without the supercharge, it would have been close. Uh, but that supercharge health really made it feel like there was no challenge for him whatsoever. David, you dispatched the suits with consummate ease. There, first up was John, John wasn't it? John in the green. Tell us how you did away with him. Well, he must have seen my chain gun and started picking it up the stairs, but. Not much for me. He certainly wasn't. Then we had, uh, who was that kind of yellowy, brownish yeah. guy? That was Gary, yeah. What happened yeah. with him? Uh, he stood up to me, got a couple of shots in, but just got blown away. He was away. beside that big bin thing, wasn't he? Yeah. Tried to hide behind that, no use at all. Now, Simon was a little bit of a problem, the guy in the black. Yeah, he, he used to stress to see if he's running away and just bang, bang. But as I was just chasing him, keep shooting at him, took it slowly and just... So at the end of the day, was it any problem at all for you? No problem. No problem. What a delightful, fun challenge. And having watched it twice, it would have been way more boring if they'd shown the other people's screens as well. Just having it focused on David was the right move. Also, David gets into my good books as well, because in his description of what happened with the businessman, he said one of them pegged it up the stairs. In the old days, Belgium didn't exist. Then Tintin arrived and they built the whole country around him. Now the young scamp is on the Super NES. Hergé's Adventures of Tintin, a little guy who looked a bit like Mark Lamar for the younger members, and had a little dog called Snowy and a friend called Captain Haddock, and he used to run off and get into all sorts of naughty cartoon adventures. Well, this is the game. Admittedly, he's bigger in Europe than he is over here, but how will the SNES game do? Rick Henderson's been playing it madly. Although it is a platform game outwardly, the variety of levels is fantastic. There are people to ask for clues. You can come in and out of the background. You can swing people up mountains. There is an awful lot to do here. And to be honest, even though it's got that Belgian lunacy about it, it's very good. Right, Dave Perry, in our first review here for Tintin in Tibet, um, has got a comment here where he says, 
Tintin is more popular in Europe than he is in the UK. We're in Europe, you dolt. I think what he should have said is on the continent. That's exactly it. Yeah, I know what he means because it is more popular in Belgium and places like that. But it's just like, you could tell that he voted for Brexit, the big feckin' idiots. <laughs> but Luke, did you know that Belgium didn't exist before Tintin? They built it around him. I've been to Belgium. That's not that wrong. I will give Dave Perry a point for one thing, which is he doesn't just say, oh, this is Hergé's Adventures of Tintin. He does the full Hergé's Adventures <laughs> of Tintin. I bloody loved watching Tintin on Channel 4. Yes. Either the movies or the TV show. It was all good. And I also kind of liked how this review panned out because Dave does just run down the rough character traits of Tintin and his friends and then just goes, here's Rick. He's been playing the game a lot. Well, that makes me think then that Dave didn't play the game at all. And so it was just because like he doesn't say anything about the game. He literally just tells you who Tintin is and then says, and here's Rick to tell you about the game. Rick gives a review of the game. It gets 86%. I would wager Dave hadn't picked up a pad for this. Oh, well, you see, that's because he's a marketing manager, not a young investigative journalist. Like you, though, I love Tintin. Uh, a friend of mine is a huge, huge Tintin nerd. And he kind of got me back into it a lot recently because he's got all the books in that. And actually, we went to Belgium together and went to a Tintin museum and stuff. And it was, it, it did make me want to like pick up some of the books again and reread them because um, I was a big, big fan of that cartoon series and, and all of the Tintin sort of related regalia. Um, but this game as well looks like it's quite interesting for a SNES game. There's lots of sort of dynamic ways of playing the game. There isn't a whole lot to say about it though, because if you literally go, it's one of the shortest Wikipedia pages I've ever seen in my life. The Wikipedia page basically is, it is a game that was released on the Mega Drive, Game Boy, Game Gear, PC, and Game Boy Color, and then just lists those again, but with the years they were released in. Which is a real shame, because you look at this game, particularly the SNES version, they've really done a good job of mirroring the art style. Mm. Like this, this feels like it was pulled from the pages of the comic book. This is a real, real... Like, good interpretation of Tintin and Snowy and Captain Haddock and Professor Calculus, Thompson and Thompson. Oh man, I need to go and get those Tintin books and reread them because they were a key part of like kind of my early comic book era, them and Asterix. I was going to say Asterix was, it for, was for me, yeah. Much like Asterix, um, there were some bits that have aged like spoilt milk. Yeah, um, they have aged poorly yeah racial stereotypes they're there uh, some aspects of animal cruelty colonialism um yeah it i think asterix is less problematic because asterix everyone is a parody like the gauls themselves are parody and so everyone it's kind of the thing of like if everyone is a spoof or a caricature is one more offensive than the other it's not a defense it's just a case of it's difficult to single out an individual in asterix and go well, that person's being treated more unfairly than this person. Mm. It, it's kind of, it's part of their entire style and humour. But, I, I mean, Tintin actually got some revisionist history going on. One of the early books, Tintin in the Congo, you could probably guess where this is going. Mm -hmm. um, in the original work, Tintin was shown at a blackboard addressing a class of African children uh, with the statement of, my dear friends, I'm going to talk to you today about your fatherland, Belgium. <laughs> 1946, he redrew it to show a lesson in mathematics. And then just, just kind of like things like that were done in various books across the time. And Hergé kind of did say as an excuse, not saying it's valid, 
this is just what he said, I portrayed these Africans according to this purely paternalistic spirit of the time. It was the style at the time. So I will gladly reread some Tintin. There's a couple of books I might skirt around, but you know what I do want to read sometime soon? Tintin Goes to the Moon. Yeah, that's the one, right? That, that bloody cover. Lo- that bloody big red rocket ship, that's the one, mate. Oh, yeah, that cover. That that That's what gets a young kid into science fiction is you go and you look and you see your asterisks and you see your funnies and then you see this bloody great rocket ship. Absolutely. Take note, Glenn Morgan and James Wong. That's where you went wrong. I love that we just got to talk about Tintin for far too long. <laughs> In Japan, this game comes with a black gun. Over here, the gun's painted bright blue just so stupid kids don't get confused. It's Virtua Cop on the Saturn. Yeah, it's a great game. It's come onto the Saturn and once again shows the quality of Sega's arcade range when brought into the home. Also, you get a gun with it, and that can't be bad. There's also various elements like shooting guys in the knees and the elbows, shooting the guns out of them, blowing away barrels, bringing great big pylons down onto cars. Not only is it arcade perfect, it even has a couple of extra options in the Saturn version that you don't get in the arcades, such as the mirror mode. The mirror mode means that all the enemies are reversed and you can go back through the game with no similarity in where the enemies come from. You also have a training mode, which is a shooting gallery with randomly generated shooting points. Now, Ash, you and I both know how Dave Perry feels about imports. <laughs> Stop the cocking presses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you and I have got a very similar note here, which is just like, are you playing an import copy of this game, David Perry? With your black Virtua Cop gun, you cheeky little sod. I know, right? Even marketing managers like to play import games every now and again, it would seem. Uh, because Dave is doing this review, posing with the import version of the gun, because he's cool. In fairness, if you're going to have either a black Virtua Cop gun or a pink and or blue one, yeah. I, I, yeah. Guess, I guess so in a way, yeah. I, I, don't yeah. Mind, I don't mind the blue ones, I don't mind the pink ones, I, I kind of get it, but it is like, yeah, watching Dave pose with that gun does make him look like an absolute tit, uh, in, in almost the best way. And he basically he likes this game because it comes with the gun. Um, we get we get onto Rick, who doesn't have the gun, but does say it's arcade perfect. Um, hey, we're, we're using that term again, are we? Yeah, we are. There are, Remember, however, we kept saying that about SNES games. Like every time a new SNES game goes, it's arcade perfect. It's got all of the bits in it that were in the arcade, and they definitely look identical. But there are actually some extras in Virtua Cop. You do need extras in on-rail shooters to get them to appeal to the home market. So you get a training mode, a shoot, which is like a shooting range with randomly generated targets, and a mirror mode, which doesn't put evil beards on everyone. It just flips the entire game. So villains that come from the right now come from the left. If only it did put beards on them, though. Everyone becomes Spock from the Mirror Mirror that's universe. That's exactly, yeah, that's what I'd like. But, oh, 95%. I think entirely earned. I think so as well. I mean, the thing is, you don't actually need a black, pink or blue pistol to play this on the Saturn. You can play it with a normal Saturn controller, which nowadays, unless you've got a CRT, is the only way to play it on the Saturn. And this game is also notable for being one of the first to use the Sega graphics library, which was Sega's kind of way of trying to put things together and make it a bit easier to develop for the Saturn. And actually, do you know what's pretty impressive about this as well, considering how much some SNES games are still being sold for at this point here in 1995. It's only 60 quid with the gun. You know, a copy of Super Street Fighter 2 on the Super Nintendo would have cost you 60 quid as a base thing. 
But this is the game and the peripheral for 60 notes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it looks great. Finally on the Saturn, Hebreki Popoido, which is Japanese for why are Dave and Rick wearing shades in the middle of winter? Hebreki Popoido? Huh? What on earth is going on? It's basically your, your Hebreki's Popoon on the SNES, but on the Saturn. Mean Bean Machine, Pack Attack, Puzzle Bobble, they've all become very popular lately. All these more graphic-y, Tetris-y type games. That's exactly what Hebereki's Kapoito is. Trouble is, it's absolutely bonkers. There's just too much going on on screen to actually make a puzzle game work. Puzzle games should put you into a calm state and let you relax, let you get into it gradually. But Hepperaki's Popoito throws everything at you at once and you end up getting hit from a thousand angles. And in our last review, Rick and Dave are wearing sunglasses indoor in the middle of winter. Why? I did put this question in my notes, and by the end of the view, I think it's because the game they're looking at is just so loud. It's like the future's oh. so bright, we're wearing shades. Is that what they're doing here? It's because there's so much going on screen that you need to wear sunglasses to sort of protect your, your innocent and sensitive eyes. Yes, that is exactly it. And maybe not at all to cover the fact they didn't have much to say about the game. Yeah, but, or to go on the fact that maybe they'd had quite a big night the night before doing this review. Oh, yeah. They'd been out on a virtual cop session. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But Dave throws out the names of Mean Bean Machine, Puzzle Bobble, Pack Attack. They're all very popular, and they're all puzzle games. That's what this game is. But it's bonkers, Luke. It's absolutely bonkers. Yeah, I, mean, I think Rick's comment here is quite fair, which is that there's just too much going on. And... It, we made this point a couple of weeks back, actually, you know, sort of about how whether or not people would realize that this is what the Sega Saturn is good for is sort of like these 2D style games. Because this is a SNES game, you know, it's a SNES game that's been ported up to the Sega Saturn, or it's, you know, it's been released on the SNES and now it's on the Sega Saturn. So it's not like anything graphically brilliant for this 3D world that we're living in. However, as we've discussed on this podcast a lot, the Sega Saturn excels at doing these sort of 2D style things. Um, but it's also a game that is, it's not the best version of this sort of puzzle game. I think there are much better puzzle games out there. I mean, I've been playing quite a bit on the Saturn recently, partly for research for an upcoming podcast guest appearance, partly because it's now sat downstairs plugged in under our main TV via the Retro Tink. And two wireless pads, two player action, a go-go, lots of puzzle bobble. Lots of fun on the various Puzzle Bobble games, which is particularly fun because the versions I've got are the Japanese versions, which means good luck navigating the menus. <laughs> yeah. Accid I've accidentally ended up in like kind of a one-player endurance mode when all I really wanted was PvP. <laughs> but yeah, 57% there for Hebereki's Popoito. It's, it's interesting to see it featured on the show. That is what I would say. And maybe I will check it out and see if it still requires me to wear sunglasses indoors. Coming up after the break, the sequel to the greatest multiplayer game ever, including some top good-looking American bloke teen band action with EYC. All of this coming up in a few short minutes. Smooth, creamy, warming. Give your spoon a treat. Sink it into a bowl of nourishing Quaker oats. How long are you going to be in there? SO unleaded fuels now have more cleaning power. 
reducing some harmful emissions by up to 20%, while still allowing your car optimum performance. Esso Unleaded, a new generation of performance fuels. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is it, sir. Excellent. Nine minutes, then. Nice pair of binoculars, sir. Mm-hmm. They're uh, not service issue. Certainly not. They're Austrian. Mm. Barclay card, is it, sir? What? Did you get them on your Barclay card, sir? And why should I want to do a thing like that? Well, sir, you get 100 days free insurance. Yes. Well, in case... In case they get stolen? And who's going to steal them, exactly? Are we about to be mugged by a gang of delinquent haddock? You could always lose them, sir. Lose them in a five-foot dinghy? Oh, dear, I've lost my binoculars. Oh, no, there they are under the seat. You got your damage, sir? Will you shut up about Barclay Card, You couldn't damage a pair of binoculars in here if you tried. So, let's hear no more about Barclay Card. You see, a man in my experience knows that when he's got a pair of binoculars... of fun with the real sounds doodler from tiger ed it adds real sounds to your own coloring creations pick a sound and it becomes part of the picture the real sounds doodler from tiger ed at toys r us this christmas toys r us price 34.94 channel 4's back in the emergency room dealing with complications of the heart I'm the one who's had to go home to my husband. There seems to be a little tension in the workplace. And of the mind. She's irritating as hell and you know it. They're fighting to keep their patience. ER, the new series starts Wednesday at 10 on 4. Welcome back. Tonight's 
celebrity guests are just getting that last stray piece of nose hair forcibly plucked. We don't want to show you that. Instead, we'll go over to Games Master and show you what they'll be playing. Now, this sort of actually applies to uh, the, our next episode, episode 13, but I feel like Games Master Series 5 has really started to find a, a nice routine for itself in that, you know, our, we have our first challenge, then we have the news, then we have the actual challenge, and then the reviews, and then either Games Master will tell us what the challenge is for the second half, or we'll just say, there'll be a challenge, get a round break, come back, here's the challenge, and then we have the feature at the end. And they kind of chopped and changed it a little bit in the first half, but I think in the second half of this series, they've really nailed down this tight format. Yeah, it it it's comfortable. Although you mentioned the next episode. The next episode gets a bit weird and... um spoilers because i was just kind of re-watching bits of it the uh the feature in body is for the next episode is a case of hmm, this feels like new section scrag ends to me a little bit isn't it i mean it's it's we'll get to it when we get to it but it is a bit you know it's cool because it's new technology but at the same time but you know what let's get into this challenge let's, let's actually come back to episode 12 let's get into our celebrity challenge what are we playing games master i'm in the mood for some classic gaming action and our next challenge on Bomberman 3 should provide just that. Like the previous Bombermans, the idea is simple. Contestants run around the maze, attempting to blow each other up by hurling bombs. A number of different power-ups are available for those players canny enough to use them. But as usual, the crucial thing is to avoid getting boxed in and finding yourself a sitting duck for your opponent's bomb. As always, the last man standing earns the joystick. I mean, we've had, this will be our third Bomberman challenge that we've had uh, across the, our Games Master run, but we've always really, really liked Bomberman challenges because it's, it, you know, lean, it, it's so good for multiplayer action. It is one of those games where you are not limited to just 1v1 or hot seating. You can do full four, or in the case of Super Bomberman 3, five player. Apart from that challenge, where it was a series of one-on-one -on -one battles against a guy in a mascot suit that may or may not have passed out. Yeah, that's what I think the conceit that one didn't quite work. I think this one it works much, much better. Our second celebrity challenge with a boy band playing Bomberman in our Games Master run as well. Oh man, Luke, it's EYC. It's a who's who of who gives a fuck. Oh, no, I'll get on to EYC in a bit, but just to say Bomberman 3, obviously the third Bomberman to appear on the SNES. Weirdly... It was released in Japan, and I believe this is a Japanese version we're seeing here. It was released in Europe, so we got it. America, not a dicky bird. Which is our second game in this episode where that's happened, because Hebereki Poiboito didn't get released in North America either. Well, in the case of this, it's because Hudson Soft USA <laughs> bankrupt, so no one to release it there, so it never got released. Weirdly, there was a lot of things added to Bomberman, uh, via Bomberman 94, Super Bomberman 2, a lot of extra features that they kind of went, eh, let's scale it back a bit. But we'll add some more characters and also some kangaroos. I like that in the footage that they showed for this challenge, they showed that the white Bomberman blows himself up straight away, which is wonderfully prophetic, which will what will happen in this challenge. Oh, man, this, this challenge is 
I think it's probably my favorite Bomberman challenge we've had, because as much as I love the Take That challenge, it was very messy gameplay, and also it was kind of like botched from the beginning because of the uh, the keyboard bug when you had that many people playing it on the Amiga. So please welcome the latest in a long line of team pinup bands who've come on the show expressly to highlight how physically unattractive I am, Damon, Dave and Trey EYC. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Damon. How are you doing? Welcome, Dave. Hello. Nice Thank to you. see you, Trey. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Okay, now, Damon, you have you guys have been in pop since the age of 12. What did you start off doing? Well, I started off as a backup dancer. Um, I was a backup dancer for Tiffany, um, mm -hmm. Michael Jackson, and Shanice Wilson. A lot of people. So you worked with Michael Jackson when you were 12 years old? Not when I was 12, my very first job. <laughs> no, but later on. Yeah. That's what I was doing. Uh -huh. But it's, uh, it's Dave that's the big games player. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, I'm very competitive, so, you know. Uh, yeah, you're going to whip these two guys tonight? Yeah, easily. I'm just trying to figure out who am I going to, you know, beat first and who am I going to let stay in the game the longest. Uh -huh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, finally, Trey, you have been in Baywatch. Is that true? I, yeah, sure enough. Well, that is, I mean, have you met the great goddess Pamela then? Yes, I have. And how did you get on with her? Um, actually, um, you guys should have seen the, the movie that we made, Baywatch 2. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, because I've actually been married to Pamela for seven years, and she's never mentioned you, Trey. Really? Me really too. Funny. She's no, never mentioned not you. Not even once. <laughs> it's EYC who enter the kind of gaming heaven arena like they're just kicking off a music video. They're doing the sidestep down the stairs. They're about to burst in the song. Do you know what EYC stands for? It stands for Express Yourself Clearly. This was a band I had to do quite a bit of research on because, you know, this is December of 1995. I am nine years old, just on the verge of turning 10. I am quite into music at the moment. I'm getting now CDs for Christmas. I am listening to the charts every single Sunday while I'm having my bath before school the next day. And good crikey, I couldn't tell you much about this band whatsoever. Like it really, you look at the YouTube comments on all of the broadcasts of this episode and all of them are just like, who the fuck are these lads? And they are a band that you do have to go do some, not digging around because Wikipedia exists, but yeah, like I don't think they are on anyone's oh, I remember them list for 1995 bands even though by the you know they're american they were bigger here than they were in their home country it's the new kids on the block effects it's like hey do you remember new kids on the block weren't they cool well look here's another american group that we're going to push in the same way and part of it came because they were involved in uh the smash hits poll winners party in fact they were the first to win it and that is a, that is kind of a poll that would go on to really launch a lot of careers. Boys Own, Backstreet Boys. That was what kind of propelled those acts here in the UK. And they did really well in the UK. As you said, they had six top 40 hits over their musical career. And it, their first one, Feeling All Right, sold over 60,000 copies. Not something to be sniffed at.
even though it didn't get to number one, that's still a substantial amount. That's exactly it. Like, their highest chart position, as far as I can tell, was 16. Like, if on a now CD, they would be on the second side at about track 10. Like, and you know, almost buried in the second half of the second half. And... I think that kind of sums them up really like they appeared to split next year they reformed a couple of years later for a single in the us it, it's interesting like looking what they went on to do afterwards because two of them kind of co-wrote some songs and this and the other but damon is the one i've found the most interesting because i went on to eyc's youtube channel and he himself had a little solo career as a gangster rapper called limp wristed and he had a single that was called I'll cut you, bitch. Well, and and this was serious. This was not a parody. Well, I listened to the song and I couldn't quite tell. Because if it's parody, it's not a good one. And if it's serious, it's not a good one. Yeah, I mean, just also the the, the rapper name Limp Wristed. Yeah, exactly. And it's... What sounds like Biscuit, but isn't Biscuit. It's at the same time as Limp Biscuit, but it's not at the height of Limp Biscuit's popularity because Limp Biscuit wouldn't become a mainstream act until the late 90s. And as far as I can tell, this was in between 96 and 99. So at this point, Limp Biscuit would not have been a popular band that you would have have parodied the name of. No, definitely not. But wow, that's... That that that's pretty fucking weird. Um, it's really weird. The only other weird thing that kind of popped up to me is they actually performed in front of Princess Diana at the Princess of Wales charity concert, like so at Wembley. I think it was arena, probably not stadium. But also, that's just a weird one of like these three guys from an American boy band who made it in the UK primarily because of leftover New Kids and Smash Hits popularity. And they end up performing in front of then royalty. Yeah, I, I had to listen to a couple of the tracks, and they're not bad. They're, they're just very forgettable. It's a bit let loosey in a way, you know. Look at what we had last uh, last series. Hey, I liked let loose. Well, I know you were on board for let loose. Obviously, the challenge was absolutely garbage, but you know they themselves were nice enough. And I think the same goes for these three lads here. Like they're quite game for a laugh. And I think they kind of carry this challenge forward. Although I will say some challenges have lasted less time than it takes them to walk down those stairs. It's in their interview, though, where we have a joke that, oh, it's it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, ish would be the word I would use uh, to describe this with Damon talking about, you know, he was in the industry since he was 12 because he was a backup dancer for Tiffany and Michael Jackson. And Dom just looks at him and says like, oh, you were a child hanging around with Michael Jackson, were you? And yeah. Oh, there's all this uncomfortable of like, um... Yeah, Dom's like, I smell blood in the water and a potential lawsuit. But he's quick to clarify that, no, no, this was later. So, phew, lawsuit dodged. Yeah. Let's move on. Please do. And then there's Trey. Yeah, they have this conversation about that. He was in Baywatch once, so he's met Pamela Anderson. And I've... If I write here, he said, we made a movie called Baywatch 2. And I had to go and check my scandal calendar because this is actually, technically, I think, after the Pam and Tommy sex tape has been filmed and stolen, but still a year or so before it starts to leak out and appear That's on the I internet figured. and elsewhere. That's what I figured. I thought this was too early for that. But it does, of course, raise the question of, was it a known thing, like in the industry? Because it's a weird joke to make. 
it also falls awkwardly flat. It's actually slightly more awkward than the Michael Jackson joke. Well, that's it. Like I've written in my notes here, he. It sounds like he was making a sex tape joke, but there's no punchline to it. And Dom rescues it by just going, "Oh, it's weird. I've been married to Pamela for several years, and she's never mentioned you." And Trey's like, "Oh, me too." It, it's it's a bit messy. It's and, awkward uh, back and forth. Uh, do you know what the problem is, Luke? He didn't express himself clearly enough. <laughs> I'll give you that I one. had that one written down and I was quite proud of it. <laughs> Damon Trey and David from EYC are about to play Super Bomberman 3. The hordes of screaming girls that we, you could hear earlier on outside the studio were not for them. They were in fact for Dave Perry, who's helped me out on this. Dave, I'm going to call you Killer today. Oh, very nice. And uh, So listen, Dave, if you were playing with these three young boys, how would you do it? Well, the secret of Bomberman, obviously, is not to panic. You work your way methodically across the screen, picking up all the good icons along the way, and don't get caught in the corners. But in Bomberman 3, you've got an extra thing to remember. Collect an egg as soon as possible. This will give you one of the coloured kangaroos. Not only do these have special powers, but they allow you to take two hits. OK, thanks very much, Dave. And, you know, because those Japanese are just so wacky, we get a little, uh, little bit of that Japanese commercial stuff that we saw last series. And then it cuts back to Dominic Diamond doing little, like, sound effects as he kind of tries to get himself back into the zone after seeing such wackiness i mean in fairness it is fairly wacky it it is full-on bomberman japanity and uh while he's doing that dave is just glaring into the camera but luke that horde of screaming girls we had earlier they weren't for eyc they were for killer dave perry otherwise oh, indeed, known as yeah. dave <laughs> and then dom says how would you play with three young boys <laughs> Dave no-sells this at all. Dave's got no time for that. He actually, he's basically just like, look, I know what you're here to do. I'm here to still do my series one advice. And here is my series one advice for this show. Yeah, work your way across the screen, pick up power-ups, don't get trapped in the corners, and make sure you get a coloured egg so you can get a kangaroo. Because apparently, Luke, kangaroos come from eggs. They do, and have all got different abilities. We know that about kangaroos. Yeah, I mean, I've been to Australia. I should really know this. So Trey is the Grey Bomberman, but it doesn't really matter which colour he is because Trey kills himself immediately. Rick and Dom haven't even gone through which characters they are, and he's already killed himself. But the three Bombermen are not alone, Luke. There's a Bomber Lady. There is indeed, yeah. They've added a fourth person into this, a CPU-controlled character, just to try and like spice things up a little bit. And apparently have set it to the hardest difficulty as well. Although... The bomber lady spends quite a bit of time just standing around waiting. I do wonder, is is this kind of an enemy that works based on what moves her opponents are making and how aggressive they're being? Because they're not that great, and one of them just killed himself before he'd even had his name read out. So maybe the AI was actually confused and was just like, hmm, immediate suicide, it's a bold tactic, I'm not quite sure what they're hoping to achieve. And it actually just broke the AI. But it means that we at least still have three characters on the board. And both of them immediately get their kangaroos. And then, by luck more than judgment, Damon manages to take out the CPU. Yeah, he lost his kangaroo in the process, but totally worth it. Yeah, that's some bragging rights. But... um I'll be honest, the biggest issue with this challenge is that they're actually doing really well. They just seem a little nervous, like like their confidence in their game playing ability isn't quite there because when they're going, 
they're actually not that bad. They occasionally kind of like stutter or stall or don't finish going around a corner enough, but they've got the core mechanics down. And it's actually nice to have a Bomberman challenge where only one player kind of bombs themselves. I think it's also not helped by that they don't use the kangaroos to their full extent. Not that that's particularly helped by Dave Perry. Um, This is another example of had this been any other show filmed at any other time, they would have just done a retake or redubbed this in post because Dave Perry talks about how the uh, yellow kangaroo can kick bombs over walls. And then it's like, oh, no, wait, actually, sorry, no, it's the blue kangaroo that can do that. The yellow one can just kick walls. Like anywhere, any other show that have just done a retake of that or done it in post. But Dave, nope, just keeping Dave's flub there and him like misremembering what each of the kangaroos does. But even to the point, neither of them use that. Like neither one of them who has the yellow kangaroo just keeps bombing the walls. He doesn't kick them at all. And the guy on the blue one never kicks the bombs over. So it never really it never really escalates to that degree, which is what the kangaroos are supposed to do. I suspect that these guys may have played Bomberman before, but they just hadn't played this Bomberman. So they were kind of going with the core mechanics of Bomberman and not yeah. worrying about some of the special features for this one or for later iterations of Bomberman, which is fine because if you've got the fundamentals down, it's still okay. But eventually they kind of chip away the blocks enough and at that point it's cat and mouse because there are no walls dividing them they can directly reach each other and it's really whoever gets hit first but david can take two hits and that would be important if damon didn't get trapped and not only did he get trapped by one of david's bombs he then dropped another bomb under himself for good measure just to make sure the job gets done just to make sure he definitely does die and damon does win at the end there you uh, you managed to dispatch the computer opponent. Now, they were set on the hardest level possible. So that was quite good from you then, Dave. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a nice little victory, but I should have beat Dave. But... <laughs> it was, because then it was left to you and Dave. And Dave, you, you tonked him in the end. Hey, I just wanted to drop a bomb on him. And no. That's what I did. <laughs> uh, now, finally, Trey. I'd like to think of someone who's been on this show that's done worse. But I can't really. I mean, I can't. So you know what that means? I get the angels. Uh, no. That means you get zip. Oh. I'm afraid, Trey. You, you have to keep on wearing those sunglasses. Okay. That's your, that's your prize. Yeah, I think the post-match is fine enough. Like, it's a nice back and forth and stuff. Talking about how killing that CPU really was a victory unto itself. Uh, I don't need the golden joystick. I killed that super duper hard CPU character instead. I would actually take that as a victory because you still eliminated someone. And when there were only three people actually playing the game because one of them committed suicide right at the beginning, it's still a victory. It's still a form of victory. And I'd say, yeah, 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 I'd I'd take that. It's more than what Trey is going to get. Because Trey's there being like, oh, I think uh, I'm going to get the angels for, for what happened to me. And Dom's like, you're getting zip, mate. You're getting nothing. In fact, I love it's just like Trey's like, yeah, I, I think I get the angels. And Dom's just like, no. Trey is the he's the most awkward of the three in terms of trying to do banter, but doing it very poorly. Kind of weirds me out a bit. Like he he I don't know what it is. There's just something about his manner that like makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. And it's nothing to do with the kind of the porn tape thing. It's just a case of like, I don't know. He's slightly just weirds me out, that's all. But not only does he not win a joystick, not only does he not get to get the angels. He has to keep wearing those sunglasses, which the other two find 
hilarious. And we get something here that I don't think we've really had on Games Master before, which is that after they've done the Golden Joystick presentation, Dom looks directly to camera and gives you like the release date of when their next album is out. Now we know like a lot of the celebrities come on this show to promote the things that they're doing, you know, the Gladiators and the Series 2 were there to promote the new series and artists have been on before to promote their albums and stuff but we very rarely have had dom look directly down to camera and say like and you can buy their second album put it on eyc by going to this or the other or you know like it's available in shops now it'll be available for christmas it was almost like live and kicking style of, of like you know product placement and advertising yeah you know, the promotion i bet it was in the contract had to be absolutely had to be the reason why they're there is that you promote the second album and yeah he he does he does he puts the promo out there, but then immediately undermines it by going. And whilst we ponder the wiseness of that purchase, it's time to check out today's feature. I'm sure the PR person was thrilled by that line. Well, spoiler, Luke, it never charted. No, it like not even the top 100, as far as I can tell. It sank without a trace. Question: What is unusual about this pilot for a German TV show? No, it's not the presenter's unfeasibly bad dress sense or the naffness of that ball he's about to kick. Yes, the set wasn't there. Clever German bloke. Just as special effects in films are created on computers rather than with miniatures, there'll soon be no need to build expensive real sets for your TV programmes thanks to new virtual set technology. Virtual set exists only in a computer's memory. The presenters are filmed against a blue screen by cameras equipped with trackers. As the cameras pan and zoom, computers the size of Swindon produce the backgrounds in real time. It's even possible to replicate real locations by simply scanning in a photo of your favourite office building. You know, we've all got one. The same scanner can be used to grab any item, and once in the computer's memory, it can be reproduced to bring new life to those dull discussions on the merits of different zit creams. This is one of those features that we sort of get in next week's show as well, which is a bit tomorrow's worldy, a bit bad influency. Uh, it's not quite what i enjoy about games master and the sort of features i like to see from games master you know i really enjoyed seeing like dom set visits to wing commander and things like that or you know his set visits to to movies um this is about virtual sets and it is cool and it is very interesting technology but it's not the sort of thing that i love about games master if that makes any sense it's not the thing i, I remember from games master no i i confess i did not remember this feature i found it kind of fascinating because virtual sets is something that has only recently become more commonplace like there's been augmented sets kind of like uh, i think bbc news has been using computer enhanced sets for a while and various other shows do it and of uh, i mean of course your day job augmented reality all over the place doesn't it look great luke i am adamant that they have got to deal with a company for a certain number of years and once that deal is up they won't be doing them anymore because i don't think that they're doing this and thinking that it looks good no is it is it i mean does it really save that much on pyro budget but what we're seeing here is kind of actually the evolution of what uh, Doctor Who and Nightmare have been doing for quite a while, which is they do chroma key. It's green screen. What they're adding here is rather than the uh, overlay being a static backdrop or a painting or live video footage of a model, it's all being rendered in real time on a computer. And most importantly, the cameras have tracking sensors on them so as the camera moves around the person perspective on the set changes as well which is 
really, really cool. And if you look at a lot of the stuff we've been watching recently that's been really popular on streaming services, particularly some of the Marvel stuff, uh, the Mandalorian, things like that, they're now making use of this kind of camera tracking technology, except they're not using green screen and kind of um, overlaying or underlaying the, the, uh, the image. They're just kind of having it on a high definition panel in the back. So we can see where the technology is now. But to see this in 1995 and for it to look pretty good, I think it looks actually pretty. I, I wouldn't more. I'd say more than pretty good. I think it looks really good for the time. I mean, I'm sure if we saw this footage first generation on HD, kind of now, it would look terrible. Mm. But via YouTube VHS captures, I'm looking at it, and the first bit in particular, the football set, looks really good. Now, the further they reach, the more fantastical they get, the flagpole sticking out of a building and the um, the uh, the hilarious character we get shortly. Um, that is less convincing, but still cool that this was being done in 1995. It's a feature that it's kind of cool in hindsight and it's certainly cool to look back on. The presentation of it is because it is Games Master in 1995 and it is, you know, cynical Dominic Diamond. It's just a lot of sort of making fun of it and sort of about how like it's not all that great. Uh, and like you, I mean, it's not helped by the fact that Desmond is quite a hideous creature design-wise, and it is, you know, I would say a fairly poor Nutty Professor impersonation. Oh, Rick, Rick, you have to hide me from the Batman. There's a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done before. Lady, would you stop with the pushing? Who are we? Helic. Oh, yeah, he's going full Jerry Lewis on this. Oi, lady. That's exactly it. It is. It's Professor Frank doing it. it that's, you know, which is what, just a nutty professor thing. That, that's all they've gone for. And that's the side of it where Dom's like, you know, or oh, you can put an office building in there. We've all got a favorite one. It, so it's like, I think the presentation of the feature is probably why I didn't love it a lot. Uh, but it is, you know, from a technology side of things, it's yeah, quite impressive. Yeah, it, there's not a huge amount to say about this because... A lot of the details of it are very fucking dry. Like, don't get me wrong, I like a good bit of technology nerdery, but even I was reading some of the stuff on this and I'm like, I mean, I understand it. The one thing I will say is that some of the stuff being done here, like not only can be done by our laptops now, but can be done by our phones. It's again, it's that reminder of how far technology has come. I mean, we both use green screens for various things. Um, I mainly just use them with kind of, a flat backdrop, but I know that a lot of the software that I use has the ability to put virtual sets into it. And I could even, if I had multiple cameras, have different cameras have different angles on that virtual set. It wouldn't be done via motion tracking, it would be via kind of a static point of view. But again, that's on my laptop or my desktop computer, which sits under my desk, not on an array of servers roughly the size of Swindon, which I would just like to point out is a better use for Swindon than Swindon. Right, that's it. Time to dance at the end of show disco. But remember, life is a bit like being in a teen band. It's great for a while, but before you can say bros, it's over. Bye-bye. Again, I like the more apropos outro lines where it ties into things. It's a pretty good one, this one. In fact, we don't get one next week and I sort of missed having it. Well, that's because Dom's getting married. Spoilers. Spoilers, yeah. I mean, it's a very iconic episode next week. Uh, the last thing to mention as well on this is the outtake at the end after the credits is got a proper laugh out of me, which is Trey starting to starting a little fight on Dom. Okay. They're all advancing on me now. <laughs> 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 
Well, as far as I could tell looking at this, is it's kind of EYC approaching Dom and getting a bit too close. And basically Dom walks backwards off the edge of the set. And then just giggles and says, I thought you were starting a fight then. Yeah, he just, he, he basically, he runs out of platform and kind of just drops a couple of feet. It's like Jessica Nappet in Taskmaster. <laughs> I think that's going to do it for this episode of Games Master, episode 12. We are really on the final stretch now. There's only like six more weeks of this show left, uh, or this series left at the very least. But Ash, what did you make of this one? I really, really like this episode. I thought it had a very solid start. It was cool to talk about virtual on. I mean, admittedly, kind of like patting myself on the back for the research, I really enjoyed getting to talk with you about Technosphere slash Digital Beasties, because that's a crazy thing to have in 1995, and the fact that it was real. And then we get onto that first challenge. We get our three blokes in suits versus a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, and that is such a good challenge. Like the concept of setting it up, of having it three versus one rather than a free for all. Whilst maybe it could have done with a bit tighter editing, the fact that we were only seeing the kids' point of view, so we didn't know what the three businessmen were up to. And the only way it could have been improved is if the three businessmen had actually acted as a team and kind of worked together. That would have been pretty cool. Yeah, I think if they'd have been a bit smarter, they might have done that. For, I mean, for me, like this is an episode that is saved by its challenges. I think that the news is okay, the reviews are okay, the feature was okay, but the two challenges were really, really good. And the sort of challenges that, you know, when I sort of think about this show and sort of the, the this podcast, I would recommend people go out of their way to watch, particularly that Doom challenge, because it is really, really fun. It's very, very cool, especially because we've already had kind of features on Doom and on the increase of LAN parties and multiplayer and stuff like that. And now we are seeing this being applied on television. And just by it being on television, rather than just something you might read about in a magazine, just makes it feel more attainable. I mean, I am, it, yeah. I'm only at this point in time, a year or so away from having home internet and my own computer and from being able to play games online. In fact, I'm even less time from working at the Internet Cafe, which did have a LAN where we would play Command and Conquer, where we would play Quake and Doom and all, you know, we would play multiplayer games and we would be there until the wee hours of the morning with the shutters down doing lock-ins. And it was a really such a fun time. And it's nice to see that being on television and be reminded of what I've got in my personal future at that point in time and how that would become so easily obtainable in a very short space of time. I think the only thing for me that would have improved that Doom challenge is if they had taken it a bit more seriously and done it with, say, four competitive Doom players that a proper deathmatch thing as opposed to the joke of three businessmen and a child. Very funny joke, very funny visual, but I think the way to have improved the challenge would have been almost a Series 2, Series 3 uh take on it where you take this thing very very seriously with four competitive players kind of like what they do with a lot of the arcade challenges they get people who are genuinely very good at the game to play it i actually did give some thought as to how would i present this with either more competitive players or just like letting us see what everyone's up to and the only way i can think of is to do a lot of split screen maybe even maybe either having the screen split four ways with a quarter in each 
or you have it so one person is the focus and the other three are down the side. The problem is, of course, when you start doing that, you shift to widescreen and we're still in the aspect ratio of 4-3, so it's a bit trickier. I I would have golden-eyed it. You would have golden-eyed it. But even then, I mean, as you know from experience, and I know from experience, GoldenEye only really worked four-player on a bigger TV. And you've got to, I guess, think with things like Games Master, what are people going to be watching it on? If it's kids and they do have their own TV, it's not going to be a big old 27-inch TV in the front room. It might be a little 13-inch portable TV. And they're already batting against the odds because they're trying to receive Channel 4 on a coat hanger aerial. I think, I mean, they've done things like Wipeout and they did the Sega Rally Championship of splitting between the two screens and stuff. I think they could have done it with four screens. Oh, yeah, but that's two versus four. But I get it's, yeah, but they're not having both screens on at the same time. It's just flicking between your perspective, which one you're looking at. Oh, right. See, I, I was thinking you'd say just like literally have the screen split in four. That's what I'm thinking. Like, if you, But if you didn't want to do it the GoldenEye style or Mario Kart 64 style of splitting in four things, just, you know, having one of them on at each time. Yeah. Maybe the issue they had was they actually only had enough hardware to capture from one PC. If, if my money is on, they thought this would be a funnier way to present it. And they're not wrong, because it is the funnier way to present it. It's just my personal preference. If I was, And as I said, I, it's not even like I'm negging on the challenge at all, because I thought it was a really good challenge. It's just if I was to find the, the better version of this is the more competitive style of it. Now, we've not had the easiest run of episodes recently it's certainly not been all doom and gloom but we've been kind of dipping into score levels that we haven't been to for a while yeah it's had a not a poor run of form but we are very much in the middle of the season i think you and i have seen this across all five seasons now of games master the mid-season lull always have a really strong start then there's some of the challenges that they probably didn't like as much and then we end on some absolute bangers. Unless, of course, it's Series 4, in which case the last eight episodes or so felt like filler. Yeah, I mean, Series 1 was amazingly competent, 10 episodes, nice and tight. And then it was actually once we kind of increased the episode order that suddenly the filler became more noticeable. Noticeable. Yeah. And actually, we're now down to 18 episodes, which is only a short decrease, but it is a, a bit of a decrease. And I'm trying to work out, is the amount of filler proportionally shrunk as well? I think it has. Mm-hmm. Because there's certainly been no episodes that are irredeemably bad. No, I, it's apart from last week's one, but even then had that great uh, Nintendo 64 feature. I think it is just a case of, you know, 18 episodes. They filmed 18 episodes worth of challenges and they just putting the ones that you don't like as much into the middle portion. It's a smart way to do it, really. The mid-season lull is is across all series of everything. Also, consider where we are in the year. We are right on the cusp of Christmas. Yeah, the the Christmas special is only a few weeks away. And viewing figures can traditionally take a hit at Christmas because, you know, there's other shit to be done. There's pantomimes to attend. There's school plays to do. There's Christmas presents to buy. Score-wise, though, yeah, you bring up an interesting point that we have had a few, not rough goes of it as of late, but like last week's episode in particular was a was a bit of a rough one. This is a marked improvement for those challenges. I'm in the 80s for my score on this. Um, I think I'm probably low 80s. Uh, maybe I'm going to bump it up a little bit to mid-80s because of that Doom challenge, though. Uh, so, I mean, my initial thought was 
81, but I think I'm going to bump up to 84. I'm going to go proper little mid 80s, I think. Ah, see, I'm actually a bit higher than you, a fair bit higher. I'm actually at 89. I'm not at a DeLorean. I would have been at the DeLorean, but I think some of the little kind of curios that this episode brought up bumped me up a bit further. So I'm at 89. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you fancy a bit of feedback in real time, you want to interact with us, with other listeners, with other fans of retro gaming and pop culture in general, you can hop on over to our Discord, details of which can be found on social media and in the show notes. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where very soon you will have access to what we've been talking about in this show, our review of SWAT Cats. Loads of episodes are in the archives. And you can get that over at Patreon. And at the £5 level, you'll get next week's show one week early and ad-free. At the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do you get? You get our Patreon pack 2.0 with our glittery golden joystick waggler mug, which is stuffed with stickers, badges, sweeties, and retro trading cards and £5 off our soon-to-be-back-in-print under-consultation t-shirt. And you also get your name read out in the credits of this show, like these fine folks, Xanderthal, William, Tom, Simon, Sean, Sarah, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brandt, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Cliff, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew Cummings, and Adam D. That's going to do it for this episode. We will see you in seven days' time for a very iconic episode of Games Master because there are wedding bells in the air. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.